right, boys and girls, welcome to The Dad Presents. Thank you so much for joining me today. In just a minute, we got New York Times bestselling author Matt Kibbe. He's the author of Don't Hurt People and Don't Take Their Stuff. Um, it's one of my favorite books, and it's a great introductory book to uh, libertarianism. But before we get into that, just a couple things. Um, I want to talk a little bit today about hypocrisy because it's been bothering me more and more every month for like this last year. I just see a lot of hypocrisy. I saw it during coronavirus with the reaction to protest and, and so on and so forth. Just too much hypocrisy. And I'm starting to feel like I might be the last person on earth who's not a hypocrite. Sure, that's probably not true, but it's starting to feel that way. So I want to start with, I want to rewind in my life to a personal story. Um, I remember when I first moved out to California and I met this girl and she was beautiful, beautiful, smart girl, an actress, um, very engaging, very fun. We would just have the best time together, hung out all the time. And um, the relationship got pretty serious pretty quickly. We were only together about four or five months, but she was a musician. She used to sing to me. Our dates would, you know, we'd go out for dinner. We'd come back to her place, and she'd sit at the piano barefoot. She'd play, play at the piano barefoot and topless, and she would serenade me, and it was just like plucking the heartstrings of my, my heart and soul. Like she, she had me in the cup of her hand with this. Um, and then, of course, we broke up because that's, that's what happens out here, and that's what happens in life. Um, she was... She was a wild artist, and, and there was no tame in this girl. So my buddy, one of my good friends out here, he starts dating her next. Um, he met her because of me. And, of course, before he started dating her, he asked me, would I have any problem with it? And I did, kind of, but also I knew that I wasn't getting back together with this girl. I was moving on and she was a good girl and he was a good dude. Might as well let them go at it. So I said, no, I have no problem. Go for it. Have a good time. And they did. They had a good time for about a couple months. And uh, she dumped them. After she dumped them, I thought, well, you know, I'd like to start seeing this girl again. She's a lot of fun. I'm not seeing anybody. Uh, let's explore this. So I asked her back out. But first... I went to him and I was like, yo, buddy, our girl here, she's single again. I'm seeing you're not into it. Um, you have any issue if I take her out again? And he's like, no, you saw her first. It's, it's, it's fair and game. Go for it. And I took him at his word and I asked her out and we started going out again. And this ended with a fist fight between me and him about a, a week later. He was mad. So I did literally the exact same thing as him which he did the first time he was the first to do it and he went nuts about it. That's a hypocrite. See where I'm going with this. So now let's apply this and maybe not the best example I could have thought of, but I'm trying to relate things to my life personally, but let's relate this to what's going on in society right now. Okay. Just this week, we've got a famous rapper who just murdered his cousin after the murder, his label kept him and his music can still be found on youtube spotify all of that 
No problem with this guy murdering his cousin. Just flat out murdered his cousin. He's on trial for it. He did it. There's no doubt he did it. Nobody, nobody's even really trying to build the case that he didn't do it, I don't believe. Now, there's also the nation's biggest selling country artist acted like an asshole recently and let a non-directional N-bomb fly in a drunken rant. I forget his name, but he's the biggest selling country artist in the country right now. I don't know his name because I'm not, it's not really my cup of tea, but you can look him up. Just look up country selling artist N-bomb. You'll find his name. Label dropped him immediately. Dropped him immediately. And his music instantly being dropped from hundreds of radio stations around the country and in the South where he comes from. So again, famous rapper murders his cousin. Label keeps him on. Radio keeps him on with about a gajillion N-words in all of his songs. Famous country guy gets a, lets an N-bomb fly. Now, he didn't even call someone the N-word. He was just drunk, and he, he just let the word fly. He's an asshole, okay? He gets dropped. His music gets dropped from the radio. So, so do these music labels, do, do these radio stations honestly think that saying a white guy saying the n-word is worse than murder is that is that what they want us to believe is that what they think that that saying the n-word is worse than murder maybe but but i don't i don't think that's their point i don't think they believe that what i think is that they must act on the on the on the uh, white guy saying the n-word they got to take action on that because Identity politics, woke identity politics, control and run every single institution in America. And there would be consequences if they didn't dump that asshole. I mean, woke ideology, woke identity politics controls government, controls Hollywood, controls the media, controls social media, controls all the technology companies. It controls the educational system from K through 12 and the universities. These woke people they control all of it they have literally all of the power right now including the presidency and so this sets up the greatest irony in the world right now they will call out institutional racism every single day okay we never even really heard that word till about three four years ago now it's their favorite word they will call it out every day institutional racism is our biggest problem but they control all of the institutions all of them, even the military, they control now. So there's only two logical conclusions we can draw from that. Number one, they, these woke people, are the ones who cause the institutional racism, or at least they, who are in power, allow institutional racism to continue, these woke people. Or, more likely, number two, they don't really actually even care about racism. They just use the outrage that gets ratcheted up from identity politics as a tool to control everybody. So we have a government and a media class that work hand in hand, right? So the government puts something out, the media backs it up, they, they, hand in glove. And they used to have a, a boogeyman that they could get us to unite around, and that was Donald Trump, but he's now gone. So now they need a new boogeyman to scare everybody about and, and get everybody on board with their authoritarian ideas. And apparently that boogeyman is going to be 74 million voters plus libertarians, according to John Brennan, who are all white supremacists and terroristic threats to this country. John Brennan, former head of the CIA, actually said those words. And they've also seemed to nominate this new freshman congressperson Marjorie Taylor Greene as their new boogeyman. 
So, so why do they so desperately need a boogeyman? Well, because they need to keep you coming back, right? And they need to keep you in line. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a crazy person. There's no denying that. She's crazy. She talked about Jewish, Jewish space lasers starting the California forest fires. Okay? That's all I need to hear. I, I have not done a deep dive on Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene, but if you believe in Jewish space lasers, you're a crazy person. You're a crazy person. Okay, so what? She's a crazy person. She's not the first nor the last in Congress who will be a crazy person. Hank Johnson, now this is a true story most people probably don't know because you don't get mainstream news coverage when a Democrat says something crazy. Hank Johnson, Democratic representative from Georgia, expressed real concern in a congressional hearing that because Guam, the island of Guam, was so small and because it was shaped like a seesaw, like it's, it's very long but very thin, and because so many military personnel were being put on one end of the seesaw of this island, that the island was going to tip over into the ocean because of the weight of the military personnel. He said this in a congressional hearing. That's 100% true, and that's 100% batshit crazy. Even my third grader know that's not how it goes down. And if you don't believe me, just Google Hank, Hank Johnson Guam. You can see the YouTube video of those words coming out of his mouth. Now, there was no movement for him to step down from power. There was no movement to tell us how he's a danger. Nor was there a movement to, to have Maxine Waters step down from power when she encouraged citizens to attack Trump people when they saw them out in public. And people did attack Trump people when they saw them out in public. She called for vi violence. Violence happened. She incited violence. So the point is, We've got a lot of batshit crazy people in government. But now the rules, they only seem to go in one direction. And all I'm asking for is some feigned attempt at being even-handed. I'm not asking for that from the politicians because that's never going to happen. I'm asking for that from our media. Our media used to at least attempt to be even-handed. But right now, it's one-sided and it's controlled by a singular party. And when that singular party has control of every single institution in America, the president, the House, the Senate, the courts, Hollywood, education, military, on and on and on, when, when that party controls every institution and also the media, what you have is state-sponsored media. And that's, that's, that's the first line in every dystopian novel ever written is state-controlled media. Okay, then you don't have media anymore. What you have is propaganda. And there's nothing more dangerous than that. So our rulers, the people who rule over us, the people who make the rules of how we can live are the same people who are giving us information. The media is supposed to push back against government and check its power. They certainly tried to do that with Donald Trump, and that's good. Though they sometimes went a little psycho with it. At least they pushed back against him. But now there's zero pushback with this administration and zero. There's never any pushback with any of these Democratic governors all over the country who have locked us in our houses for 10 months, at least here in California. And now if anybody in the media does attempt to push back, as some on Fox News will do, like Tucker Carlson and some podcasters, well, now there's a movement to get them canceled to, you know, as AOC said, we need a a truth commission or I forget what they called it, but they want, they want 
a reality czar. That's what it is. They want a reality czar to determine what is and what is not true and real and should be heard by us. That's dangerous. They literally want government to control the media. That A reality czar is someone in government who will control the media. So if there's nobody to check the power of government, there's no end to its power. And we should all be very concerned about that. All right, you guys, let's get into it with Mr. Matt Kibbe. Okay, guys, today's program is brought to you by sheathunderwear.com. Now, guys, I'm going to keep this brief. I just want to tell you about these underwear. Are any of you out there athletes? Because Matty Boy here is an athlete. I like to go jogging. I like to work out in the garage. I like to stay active. And one problem with staying active and also having a lot of man meat is it gets sweaty down there. And the, and, and the brat sometimes sticks to the beans, and it's just a big, swampy, nasty mess. And nobody wants to get near that. I don't want to get near it. I don't want to touch it in the shower. The wife doesn't want to get near it. Nobody wants to get near that big, swampy mess. It's a problem. Sheath Underwear has fixed that problem, guys. They have fixed it. Are you an active guy? You like to work out. You need sheath underwear. They got two pouches. They got a dual pouch underwear set up. Where there's one pouch for the balls and there's another one for the peen. You put the peen in a pouch, put the balls in the pouch. They never touch each other. You sweat, you work out, you're exercising. The pouch absorbs the sweat, keeps it dry, keeps it fresh. You get done working out, you come in, you strip down, you give the wife a big hug and a kiss and she's into it. Because you have worked out and you're sweaty and you're strong and you're beefy and you're manly and your bra is fresh. So that's, the, that's about the best pitch I can give you for sheath underwear. Your wife is going to dig them. Your girl is going to dig them. And really, man, isn't that what it's all about? Don't we just want to be loved? So go to sheathunderwear.com. Use code word dad for 20% off and uh, help, help put a dollar in your boy's pocket so he can feed those kitties. All right, guys. Thank you. All right, guys. Thank you for joining the Dad Presents. Today, we got a great guest. We got Matt Kibbe. I think this is the, the third Matt we've had in, in a month, which is awesome. Power of the Mats. Uh, Matt's the president and chief community organizer of Free the People, and he's also the author of one of my favorite books, uh, Don't Hurt People and Don't Take Their Stuff. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and, and I, I live for the day when the Mats take over the world. <laughs> you know, I once had a... Oh, better. Yeah, I once I, I remember. I mean, Matt's not as popular a name anymore. I don't know how old you are, but you're probably my generation. When I was a kid, I had an AP math class, and there were nine people in it, and five of them were Matt. We used to have uh, we used to have uh, contests. You know, when you play like math games, it'd be Matt's versus non-Matt's. It was an yeah. insanely popular name back then. It um, we have several Matt's just on the Free the People team, so so I go by Kibby in house. And I think we just added another mat. So it, it gets a little complicated. Right, right. Um, so I, I, I want to jump into the book. Um, the first line of your book is the title, which is don't hurt pay people and don't take their stuff. And you say, that's it. And I mean, that's not the whole book. That's not even like a pamphlet. Um, but as a libertarian, you can kind of look at every single problem in society with that being the end result, don't hurt people, don't take their stuff and work it backwards from there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, um, I originally came up with that phrase and for all I know, it's, it's hardly original with me because it's quite possible. I stole that from your mom. Huh. 
she was teaching you how to be a decent human being when you were a kid. Sure. Uh, my mom was always telling me, don't hurt people, don't take their stuff. And, but the, but the exercise originally was, I was trying to figure out how to translate a very important book in my intellectual upbringing, um, Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments. And I think it's like seven or 800 pages long. And I was like, what would Adam Smith do if he had to tweet this thing? And this is back when tweets were half as long as they are today. Mm-hmm. And somehow I got to don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. And I think, I think a lot of times libertarians make it way too complicated. We use a lot of tribal language and special phrases to show yeah. people how, how smart we are. And, and I prefer the common sense approach. And, and a lot of people just nod their heads and say, yeah, that's right. And I'm like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we talk about the non-aggression principle as libertarians. And when you when you start talking about that, a lot of people just tune it right out because it sounds boring. Um, but that's kind of what it what it boils down to is that same yeah. expression. Don't hurt people. Yeah. yeah. And, um, uh, you know, we we're, we actually are usually worse than that because we use the the nap instead of even mm-hmm. saying the three words and at that point no one knows what the hell we're talking about no literally nobody outside of yeah our little communities um so libertarianism i feel like right now at this point in in where we are in america has a chance to actually like catch on in a way it has not since ron paul days of you know the early part of the the century um and and Often libertarianism, it's, it's dismissed by the general public as a bunch of grumpy white guys who just want to be left alone or greedy pigs who don't want to pay their taxes, right? Right. But, um, but they very rarely take on the arguments of libertarianism because they're so easily defeated. Um, it's, easily, it's easy for our arguments to push back against their arguments, so they don't really take them on. They just dismiss them altogether. How can we change? What, first of all, what are you trying to do at Free, to, Free the People? What's the goal there? And how can we change the overall way libertarians are viewed in society? So there's, um, there's, there's a lot of things going on there. And I do think um, for all of the reasons we might feel particularly pessimistic right now about what's happening in our country and even the world, I think this is a tremendous opportunity to advance these values of liberty in a way that, that really connect with people that are trying to figure things out. They're looking at this tribal warfare, right? It's right versus left, red versus blue, uh, nationalist versus socialist, whatever those those tribal dividing lines are. And a lot of people are looking at this mess saying, I I don't have a team. I I don't belong in either tribe in large part because I don't hate the other tribe. I'm just trying to figure out how to get along in life and and take care of my family and and do my job as best as I can and and hopefully earn a decent living. And I feel like libertarians have the secret sauce for solving this problem, which which again is a phrase I would steal from your mom, live and let live. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you go about your life the way that you wanna go about your life. I'm gonna go about my life the way that I wanna go about my life and the solution has to be the opposite of what we're doing right now. We're, we're fighting to control the Game of Thrones because everybody wants to sit on the Iron Throne. And once we sit on the Iron Throne, we're going we're gonna to make everybody bend to our will. Mm-hmm. And if that's the fight, um, it never ends. And we keep trying to destroy each other. 
And so like five, we've been into Free the People about five years now. And, and I started it off as a op, very optimistic thing. I, I saw an opportunity because of technology, because of, of the way that young people were consuming video content and binge watching things on Netflix and stuff like that. I saw a tremendous opportunity to reach outside of our bubble and talk to, to the generation that I call the liberty curious. And they, they live in a radically libertarian world in a lot of ways in the way they they curate content and the way they they choose their music and and all of the things that they do in this radically democratized decentralized world that they live in and i'm like if we can't connect with that generation we really have no business um, even espousing a set of values because it it seems perfect for that generation right absolutely all right, so that's what you're aiming at. Um, I a couple comments on what you what you just said. You talk about live and let live, right? And that's that's another another great phrase that kind of encompasses what libertarianism is about. So I look at all these other philosophies, right? You look at Republicans, Democrats, communists, fascists, socialists, whatever it is. All these other groups essentially want they're all the same in that they want to force the population to live under their set of rules. And given the divided nature of America right now and how much we're at each other's throats, it, it, it does feel like live and let live. Um, libertarian philosophy is kind of the only pathway forward for peace. Like otherwise, you're just constantly going to have battles between these two groups. Yeah. And, you know, that it, it strikes me that every time a politician comes up with a legislative solution to a problem that that might be real, it might be imagined. It might be, um, you know, their their stocking horse for some secret agenda they have. Who knows what it is? But one thing we know for sure is that legislation, by definition, always creates winners and losers. It always favors some people, some corporations, some entities at the expense of everybody else. And where where we've gotten into this sort of hostile place we are in America today is that everybody sees. Um, their savior as sitting in the White House. And they, mm -hmm. and they want that person sitting in the White House to have tremendous power to dictate from the top down. Yeah, isn't power. that part of the problem? Looking at that person as a savior, like looking yes. for that solution outside yourself and your family. That's part of the problem, no? It's upside down, right? Um, and and I, you know, I, I pick on AOC some, but I'm, I'm also trying to spend as much time as I can really empathizing and trying to understand what she's really trying to say and you know she talks a lot about dignity and she she feels that somehow or another legislation or a political leader or centralizing power in washington dc can somehow give people dignity and i feel like that's 100 percent upside down mm -hmm. dignity is not something you can legislate it's not something you can give it's not a check it's what you are willing to do for yourself to achieve something and to to pursue your goals to take risks to fail to succeed um, to collaborate with others to, to to draw strength from your family all of these things are sort of bottom-up things that ultimately is a responsibility on your own shoulders and it, that may be really uncomfortable it is we've all been there we've all felt that discomfort but there's no silver bullet. There's no quick fix. And I think I think a lot of politics, not just democratic socialism, but 
but a lot of politics is to lead us to believe that there's a shortcut right. to getting at that good feeling when you've, yeah. when you've done something well. No, it's easy to pick on AOC and the Democratic Socialists. They make it easy, but it's not it's not just them. Like the Republicans, they're looking to to a savior and they you know, they want they thought Donald Trump was their savior for a lot of people. Um, what you're talking about, it, it kind of goes with the, the third rule of your book, which was take responsibility, right? We have we have a society now where nobody wants to accept responsibility for their actions. And it seems like half the country, at least half the country, wants to completely remove personal responsibility altogether and endorses things like like UBI, for example, which would just lead to, to more and more people becoming de- dependent on the government. I would assume um, you hate that policy. I don't know for sure. I would assume that. Um, without that policy, though, what what happens for people who are concerned that jobs are just being erased by technology? Yeah. So so you, you first of all have to think about the unintended consequences of of uh, you could call it the welfare state or the social safety net. And and I forget how many zillions of dollars a year we spend lifting people out of poverty and and helping the disadvantaged mm-hmm. all the while things seem to get worse and not better. Worse. And, and one, one of the consequences of that is that all of that local personal responsibility and neighbors helping neighbors and, and communities banding together to lift people who are genuinely in trouble um, up, all of that gets rationalized away when you're paying half of your income in taxes, right? Between state and local and payroll taxes, um, you see all that money going to all of these programs that you are promised day after day are there to help the disadvantaged. Yeah. So you have out at that point. You have an ability to say, you know what, I already gave and I'm tapped out and I don't have to take responsibility. I can turn my head and look the other way. That's what that that's what that rule in my book is You're all about. The, ta- the taxes make uh, taxpayers not care anymore about people who are suffering because they've they've already done their part they've already paid taxes so they yeah. kind of remove themselves from that process it outsources responsibility both to the government for the people yeah. that that should be helping themselves but also for the people that could help out when when people are are genuinely in dire straits and and we've just outsourced it to a politician who by the way doesn't care about you Mm-mm. doesn't care about the person in trouble and and it's a it's just a very toxic dynamic that takes away all that local knowledge and and genuine compassion we have for people that are our neighbors in our community and, and the family next door. Um, we've we've broken that that chain and that responsibility. And I think that's a it's a lousy thing. So about but about UBI, let's let's talk about that for a second because it's we're essentially doing that right now because we've we've locked everybody out of their jobs and we've told them they have to stay at home. And now we're writing these these relatively paltry checks from Washington D.C. That actually is the infrastructure for UBI, and and you could say as an economist, if we could replace the welfare state and all of the overhead, you know, most of the money we spend on the welfare state doesn't actually go to the person in need. No, it goes to middlemen who feed off of that system. If you could replace the direct check, um, that might be a net positive it would definitely be better than what we have yeah. right now but yeah but, but there's two problems right one is we'll never do that mm-hmm. um, because the middlemen control the process and they feed off of it and 
and politics can't do the things that you rationally might hope them to do. And the other gets at that, that thing I was talking about earlier, um, purpose and dignity. And I can't imagine a worse hell than being locked in my home and dependent on Washington DC to send me a little bit of income every month. Mm -hmm. that, that sounds like an awful world to me. And I think, I think a better world would be for, for government and all of the barriers to poor people um, solving problems, we, we could get out of the way. And part of getting out of the way would be allowing for local communities to help each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want to rewind a little bit because you, you were talking about taxes. Um, and, and again, this goes to the perception people have of libertarians. Like people think that libertarians are greedy people who, do, who don't want to pay taxes. Right. So that's kind of, kind of scares some people off from, from joining libertarianism because they don't want to be viewed as being not empathetic. But the reality of it is because I used to be the same way. You know, I was pro, I was, I used to consider myself a liberal. Um, but if you're alive long enough and you see how the government operates, you clearly see that the, ta the tax system has made everything worse, not better. So, so the IRS started in like 1913 and it used to tax, I believe like the top 4% of money earners, a 1% tax. And the idea of that was to help bridge the wealth gap. Well, since then now everybody is taxed and the wealth gap has grown every decade. So the thing they're attempting to fix has gotten worse because of the solution they put into place, which is tax. So the proof is in the pudding there, right? The taxes don't bridge the wealth gap, just doesn't work. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't work for a lot of reasons um, because punishing wealth punishes job creation. And that's a, that's a sort of a Reagan-esque classic argument. But perhaps more importantly, going back to the difference between a UBI in theory and a UBI in practice, the problem with the tax code is all of the middlemen. There's there's a Washington class of insiders, and and by the way, it represents the wealthy class. It represents corporations. It represents a host of special interests that have totally gamed the tax system to benefit them right. at the expense of the rest of us. So. If, if I was a billionaire, I would have an army of lawyers rewriting the tax code and finding ways to shelter my income. So I'm not paying the highest marginal rate. Right. The guy that's trying to get rich is paying the highest marginal rate. It's a great way to keep out the competition. Yes. And as, as much as we would hope that, that you could design a rational tax code from Washington, D.C., politics just doesn't work that way. No, because the people who need to make it work that way benefit from the way it's already working. So why would they fix it? It's, it's an unfixable system, right? Um, so what, what you're talking about with um, lobbyists and whatnot, being able to control the system and game the whole system in their favor. A lot of people, I don't think, understand that on its face, but we saw a great example of that just this past month with uh, Wall Street and GameStop and this whole Reddit thing, right? right. So, so you have Wall Street and they make these short bets um, and hope a stock falls, or they actually make the stock fall, fall by getting on television and, and condemning the stock. The stock falls, they make a lot of money. Well, you know, these people on Reddit got together and, and tried to win at that game by buying the price of the stock, making it go higher and higher and higher. And they won, they beat Wall Street. So Wall Street then changes the rules of the game. They, they 
they have the power, they have the control, they control government, they control the banks, they controlled Robin Hood, and they, they stopped trading or stopped buying of that stock so that they could cut their losses and get out of it. And it's a perfect example of how the game is rigged. Like, rigged. like Wall, Wall Street greed is not really the problem. Um, Wall Street does serve a purpose and greed is, it's inherent in human nature. You're not going to legislate that away. The problem is that they have set up a game that is fixed in their favor, just like every corporation has fixed the game in their favor with taxes. And I don't know if there's a solution to that other than deconstructing government. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the, like we, we talk a lot about crony capitalism and I don't mind using that phrase. Some people get upset when you, you sort of smear capitalism, but I feel like the word is, is fundamentally damaged because when, when I use the word capitalism, I'm speaking to young people, they're thinking about cronyism. They're thinking about Wall Street bailouts that saved the bad actors. And they're thinking about, about what just happened with GameStop, where the big guys were able to game the rules using government, by the way, um, to stop the, the, the decentralized uprising against, against short selling. And, and by the way, let's, let's, let's pick on some Democrats here because they're, they're the kings and queens of crony capitalism. Elizabeth Warren, oh, with man. all of her rules designed to reign in Wall Street, it entrenches the big guys. It entrenches what she calls Wall Street at the expense of, of upstarts and, and, and wannabe investors and disruptors that would otherwise impose a level of competition and discipline on the big guys so they couldn't mm -hmm. do it. Right. Like when she talks about, she comes in now and says, she, well, we need to regulate this. Who do people think is going to get regulated or who's going to write those regulations? It's going to be the lobbyists of people on Wall Street. And all that's going to do is, is hurt the people on Robinhood, you know, the regular trader. That, that's the message people don't get when they hear Ro uh, Elizabeth Warren say something like that. Yeah. And it, I remember when uh, you remember when Mark Zuckerberg uh, came and testified before Congress. Um, I'm now. COVID has, has wiped out my memory of time and place, but uh, it was this really hostile hearing and, and both Republicans and Democrats were pounding on him for, for different versions of, of censoring online speech that they were demanding. And, and he said, I have a team of legislative experts who would love to help you come up with a solution to this problem. And it sounded really good. But what he was really saying is, I would love a really complex regulatory structure that would prevent the next Facebook from unseating me as, as the king of this, this world. Yes, yes. Yeah, because the, the, whatever regulations are set, Facebook has the resources to be able to comply with those and survive. But some upstart cannot. I mean, I'm a small businessman myself, and I'm, I'm out in California. And I think starting a business in California is what changed my political ideology, like to get a business up and going successfully out here in California, which I did and which I, I sold it 10 years later and I, I made a pretty penny, but I had to, I had to cheat all the rules. I had to just throw the rules out the window for the first three years and hope I didn't get caught until I was turning a healthy profit. And then I could go back and follow all the rules. Otherwise there was, there was no way to get it off the ground. And that's what these regulations do. You're kind of a hero or at least insanely brave for sticking it out over there. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're thinking about 
cutting bait here pretty soon, honestly, um, with what's going on with the school. So let, yeah, let's talk about that, right? So coronavirus, that's what has us thinking about possibly moving because our kids have, they've not been in school for a year and we don't know if they are going back. We've never, ever seen in my lifetime, 47, never seen a bigger uh, violation of civil liberties than what we've seen in this last year. Yet Americans just, the majority of them just lay down and take it and and will fight with with me or people like me when we push back against it. Why are Americans, is it because Americans just have a comfortable life? Like, why are they so accepting of having their liberties ripped away like this? So I, I, I just wrote a piece about this today. Um, and I was thinking about it in a personal context because 19 years ago today, I survived stage four cancer and I'm cancer free. Oh, wow. and. I, I kicked cancer's ass and I had just completed this pretty horrific um, experience with chemotherapy. And I, I'll tell this story to young people. For years, I didn't even talk about surviving cancer. And my wife convinced me to tell this story because I want people to understand how precious our time is and how we should use it um, to, to never hold back, to not be afraid to take risks, to do the things that we want to do with our life because sooner than you would like, you're gonna have that experience where things might be over. You might, you might be facing the, the fact that you're never gonna achieve those things that you wanted to achieve. And I, I, I wrote this up this morning in the context of this gripping fear that so many Americans have about a virus. This is not the first virus, it won't be the last one. This one is not categorically different than other pandemics that, that the human race has survived in the past. So I'm also a little bit mystified at how we've let fear dominate us. And I, you know, you could point to, to clickbait media, you could point to demagoguing politicians, but I also suspect that because freedom has made us so prosperous and our lifespans are so much longer than they used to be, it's almost as if scarcity and poverty are not really a thing that we think about anymore. We can't imagine that food from Instacart not showing up on our front door as we shelter in place. We can't imagine all the people that made that actually happen. And what would happen if those people were not allowed to work? And it just, it strikes me that we're victims of our own success in a lot of ways that, that yeah. now that life is relatively easy and prosperous and, and rich, we're going to now demand that we live in a world where there's no risk. Yeah. No one ever has to die. And it sounds sort of crazy <laughs> saying that, but I feel like this is what people are trying to achieve right now when they, they say permanent lockdowns forever. They keep moving the goalpost. And, and I forget, I think it was Illinois that said, well, maybe we can open up the schools in 2022 once every child has been vaccinated. Oh my God. But, you know, they'll, they'll keep moving the bar, that. right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, you're essentially saying we've gotten too comfortable and maybe a little bit soft. And isn't this kind of, it is a product of our success in this country, but isn't it kind of what happens historically in the world to every empire right before it crumbles like the people get very comfortable 
the government starts taking care of everything and then it kind of crumbles. Isn't that the historical context of empires? Yeah. And, and of course the other fact of that, and I, I see Ron Paul behind you over your shoulder there, making sure you don't screw up. <laughs> and, you know, the other part of empire, which we're also living through today is all of these endless wars that sort of drain our our wealth and and spread us out there and and create enemies across the world um those two things are the story of how um great once great countries collapse under their own weight and and i see that trend and i i don't i don't see any good indicators right now um so i got have to temper my optimism with with the reality of the world that we're living in today yeah absolutely so the i mean the wars that's that was my foot in the door for libertarianism because they appalled me right from the start and uh when it was convenient to hate the wars liberals hated the wars but then when obama got in charge suddenly they didn't care about the wars anymore and that was a real wake-up call for me but <clears throat> one thing i want to hit on with, the, with we got the wars uh we got the the corruption um with the economic system we have manufactured um uh recessions that lead to bailouts that enrich the wealthy back in 2009 after the last recession you had uh occupy wall street kind of rise up and they're pointing the finger at the banks right they're mad at wall street they got their guns pointed at wall street and then you have the tea party who's got their guns pointed at government so it seems like the two the left and the right at least had their anger directed in the right direction since then identity politics has come up which feels like a giant trick because then instead of pointing the anger at government and the bankers, now you got these two groups left and the right pointing their guns at each other. Everybody hates you. Everybody's blaming whitey. Whitey's blaming the Mexicans. Um, it's not healthy and it's not directing the anger where the solution needs to come from. Do you feel this would just be speculation, but I feel like, uh, possibly the bankers and government might have colluded back in 2009 and said, hey, we got to refocus these people and get them fighting with each other. Yeah, I, I very much believe that politics by its very nature is uh, feeds off of the division and they stoke the division. And, and it used to be class warfare, you know, sort of classic Marxist, um, you know, just uh, Lenin famously said that if we don't have an enemy we need to create one because the only way to consolidate power and and keep people afraid is to, is to make sure that they're fighting against an enemy real or imagined and it used to be the class struggle right and but now um intersectionality and identity politics um all of that is really designed to put us all in these silos and, and rank us based on on our our worthiness um, here in Washington, I live in Washington, D.C., oh, and they're using equity, which is the new buzzword mm. on the progressive left, to reallocate your access to the, uh, the vaccine. Right. And this is, this is a brand new thing because there, there would be all sorts of rational ways. First of all, I don't like the fact that the government is, is allocating scarce resources and certainly when it comes to healthcare, I think that's a that's a dangerous trend that that we're going to all suffer from. But but the idea that you would do it based on on some imaginary um, status that you may or may not have based on how politicians are dividing us, um, super toxic. 
great way to keep everybody divided and fighting with each other. And the only way to solve that problem in that world is to look to a political savior, as we were saying before. So yes, the political class feeds off of the hate and it's not just the progressive left that's guilty of this. Um, certainly a big um, theme in Trump's nationalism was, was demonizing certain people that were going to not make America great. Yeah. Yep. No doubt. I mean, and, and going back to, to libertarians, uh, one reason we might have trouble really picking up steam as a movement is there's a lot of infighting because where you have, you have the, the, the Democrats, you have the Republicans, the, it's, there's tribalism. Tribalism is at play. And, and in tribalism, there's one leader, there's the alpha and everybody follows that alpha. And that's a very human thing to do. Um, libertarians are a lot of lone wolves. There's a lot of alphas, right? So there's a lot of infighting and it's hard to get anyone to follow. And it's, it's a good thing, but it's also a double-edged sword um, in a way. And then you, you, mentioned, you mentioned the wars. Um, one thing that really disturbs me is we're in this, we're in this era of equity um, and being empathetic and caring about those who are not doing as well as us. But we ignore the biggest atrocities of of humanity against minorities that our country is doing overseas. Like we've murdered millions of people overseas, and that never gets any play with these people. Yeah. So concerned and about equality and 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 humanity. It's kind of it's got this this is another one of those conundrums where um, George W. Bush ran against nation building as a candidate. Oh yeah. And 9-11 changed that for him. Uh, Barack Obama ran against George W. Bush's policies, particularly when it came to Iraq in particular. And he never followed through on anything he wanted to do. And, and while Trump didn't get us into any new wars, he never got us out of Afghanistan, which was sort of his his feature policy that I think a lot of people uh, sort of held their nose and voted for him in hopes that he would actually finally do something about that. Um, the, the war state is a real thing. And, and getting back to this sort of public choice argument about insiders, there's a tremendous and enriching economy in the military industrial complex. And it's not Republicans, it's not just Democrats, it's the whole machine that feeds off of that system. So while most Americans would love to see us get in fewer wars and maybe bring our men and women back home and, and you know, God forbid, get out of places like Germany and Japan where hmm. our military has no business being in the first place, and yet the machine grinds on. And it's, it's frustrating and it's a, you know, it's a bit of a pickle. Like, what do we do about that? How do we, how do we actually get, get people to, understand what the negative consequences of this policy is enough so that they demand politicians do the right thing. Yeah, I think you, you hit it with the military industrial complex and how it's it's a big money making thing. And I mean, Eisenhower warned us about that on his last day in office. Um, and yeah, the message, the message, it doesn't get talked about in the media. And isn't the reason for that what you just said, it's a business and that complex controls the media. They control the messaging as well. So we don't hear about it on a regular basis, right? And, and it should be like, I, I remember being at a hearing um, that was convened by Senator Rand Paul and 
and Senator Mike Lee was there and Kamala Harris was there. Bernie Sanders was there and Bernie gave the most compelling speech against permanent war. And I almost became a Bernie bro in that moment. But then I realized, but your solution to everything after this tremendous critique of concentrated government power is to further concentrate government power. Right. And, and it's, it's frustrating to me that people don't see whatever your aspiration is, whatever your really big hearted, compassionate thing that you want the government to do, people don't understand that that's not how power works. Power goes to power mongers. Power is not dispersed through government. It's the opposite. Yes. Yes. And just like a corporation, uh, a corporation's entire goal is to make money and grow and grow and grow. If a corporation stops growing, it it goes away. I think government inherently it's it's by design is to grow and hoard more power. And when this country was started, we had the smallest government in world history. And now we might have the biggest and most powerful. Um, is there as smart as our founding fathers were uh, and the constitution and all the rules they put in place, is there really any way to stop that massive growth of federal government if you have one in the first place? So I think, um, I think, I think the founders built an amazing business plan and the constitution for all of its uh, failings and weaknesses and, and all the things that we've done as a country to undermine it over the years, it did, it did a tremendous job. But um, what, what they said, and you know, Washington said this so eloquently in his, in his uh, final address to the nation, he basically said, it's up to you guys. And I'm, I'm butchering his beautiful prose, but he's like, it's on you. If you want this thing to work, ultimately the people have to hold the government accountable. And, and all of those values of the Declaration of Independence and ultimately the Constitution um, were not necessarily the immaculate conception of the founders. They very much represented the values and ethos of, of the spirit of 76 yeah. that was in the people themselves. And I think this is where I get my optimism and this is why free the people does what it does. I don't, I don't think there's a silver bullet to fix this. I don't think there's a constitutional amendment. I don't think term limits or balanced budget amendments or all of the things that, that, that we talk about. That's not the solution. The solution is to go upstream of politics and to make sure that the next generation still is defending and living those values of independence and decentralization and individual responsibility and bottom-up community problem solving. And the reason we're in so much trouble today is that we keep looking to that one guy or at least Washington DC to do that for us. So we, we have to we have to reignite that ethos, but it's got to be bottom up. Yeah. I mean nobody in DC is ever going to vote to to make government smaller. Never that's just never going to happen. Um, you're talking about decentralization. One exciting thing that's going on in the world right now is is uh, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. Um, I don't I don't know if you're familiar with it at all, if you're involved at all, but that seems like a great uh, thing that that people developed outside the government and is now being widely adopted. Um, isn't the best way to strip the government of their power to to take away the power of the Federal Reserve 
I, I mean, I, I think I think cryptocurrency is one of the most hopeful developments. I'm not I'm not a big uh, uh, crypto geek, but as an economist, I absolutely understand how fundamentally it drains the power of the central government to manipulate our lives through manipulation of the the government currency, and and the Federal Reserve does that. You know, there's only a couple ways the government can spend money it doesn't have, right? So they can they can raise taxes, they can borrow more money, and there's limits on how much taxes people will pay without mm-hmm. some sort of catastrophic economic event. There's only so much money you can borrow right now. China's uh, loaning us less money, and it's it's going to bring some chickens home to roost. Yeah. So what do they what do they do? They they expand credit and they print money, and that was the entire uh, Ron Paul Austrian economics argument that he got from Ludwig von Mises and Frederick Hayek and all of those super smart guys. Um, cryptocurrency is is a way to do an end run around fake government money. And I would take it. I would take it one step further. I think. I think blockchain technology, um, more broadly speaking, I'm hoping is a solution to all sorts of problems. A friend of mine, uh, Patrick Byrne, the former uh, founder and CEO of Overstock.com, had spent the last five or six years investing big bucks in blockchain solutions to everything from voting to uh, Wall Street trading to uh, obviously money and he had a favorite coin it wasn't bitcoin and everything else because what what this technology does essentially is it cuts out the middleman mm-hmm. and when you cut out the middleman you cut out corruption you you yep. cut out the ability of people to game the system yeah i think that's super exciting to think about elections being done on blockchain it it, it eliminates the potential for fraud that would be phenomenal um I want to I want to talk about your book for a second because I, I do love the book and you have a chapter in there. Uh, you can't have freedom for free, which you tell a, like a warm, very relatable story about falling in love with Rush, their artistry. Um, but the I think at least I thought the larger point of the album is that if you're if you're going to be liberated and free and cut against the grain, you're going to get a lot of pushback. Like it's not going to be easy, um, and it's that's very obvious in in music the way labels will push back against an artist when they want to try something new um artists used to be some of the most liberal in the old school liberal sense of the word like fuck the government you know fuck the police fight the power right Th- those were those were artists and now it seems at some point artistry has switched to like embrace the man you know they're they're like they're with they're with the powerful now and i don't know when that happened or why, but it's it's very disappointing. Um, they they seem to embrace the ideas of authoritarianism now. Yeah. Uh, why do you think that happened? Um, I don't know why it happened, but I love to tell a lot of stories about about socialism and communism in practice, and this 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 sort of shocking trend that you see when you dig into the history of the Soviet Union or Yugoslavia or Fidel Castro's Cuba, um, the dictators always targeted the artists first. They targeted the actors and the poets and definitely the musicians. Uh, the Beatles were banned from Castro's Cuba because um, that, that free spirit of, of, of rock and roll would undermine his ability to get everybody to fall in line. 
um, Tito, um, when he took power in Yugoslavia, he, he went after poets. And of course, the Soviet Union, I, I, funny that I found this list about a year ago of all of the mostly heavy metal bands, but all sorts of different bands that had been banned in the Soviet Union. It looked like my record collection. It, I had every one of those albums and I never set out to, to build an anti-communist uh, record collection. But the Soviet people, I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but they took used x-ray films and cut albums into them and created this totally subversive black market because oh, wow, no. music to them was such a profoundly liberating thing. They were willing to die for it. And I, I tell those stories because I, I want young people and maybe even, God help us, uh, communist musicians like the Rage Against the Machine guys, sort of an irony that their yeah, name no is what it is. Um, I want them to understand what happens when you centralize power you will be the first in line to be shut down or worse. And, and I think this is, this is probably why I have hope because whatever, whatever the, the fat and happy musicians who are embracing socialism publicly may think, I think that ethos of, of disruption and screw the man is, is a human emotion, particularly in young people. Yes. And I think, I think we can, we can connect with them with those stories, but also connect with them with the music itself, because that that album, you know, before I got into the philosophy of Ayn Rand, that who at the time was uh, Neil Peart's favorite philosopher, the guy that wrote the lyrics on that Rush album that turned me on. Um, before all that, the music was just badass. Yeah. And then I, I read the liner notes and then I found the books and then I followed the breadcrumbs to sort of help develop in an intellectual point of view that would help me understand the world. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, and that's what's so disappointing about artists now seeming to embrace authoritarianism. Like, I, I don't know if they're short-sighted or they don't know the history or what. And what's also disappointing is we're now seeing, I don't want to call it book banning, but we're seeing a lot of censorship. We are in some places seeing literal book banning, like out here in, in Burbank, they're, they've listed like a dozen books that the school district will no longer have and and just classics that classics that make you think um and it's as de as um depressing as i find out how people have accepted the restrictions of coronavirus it's twice as depressing to see how liberals have accepted censorship or even denied that it is happening um once they take away that that freedom to express yourself it's ball game yeah yeah, the wokeism um, and that that just sort of authoritarian intolerance for anybody that disagrees with you about anyone, anyone that just utters words that can somehow trigger you, this this is the cancer that I worry about most in America. And, and you see it, it's, it's eating itself alive in the entertainment industry. Um, the New York Times just again went through one of these sort yep. of struggle sessions where where they got rid of someone who but as far as i can tell was not guilty of anything at all how about the guy who said the n-word in a yeah yeah he, he said it to to talk about someone else who said it and whether or not that person should be punished and uh, speaking of like a 12 year old girl or something he wasn't right. calling somebody the word he's been with the new york times for 50 years and they fired him 
after the mob went after him and now there's this you know the the cancel culture thing is is it it it's scary to me because it reminds me of stories that one of my friends who survived Mao's cultural revolution would tell me about just the fundamental intolerance from any deviation from the official line and the horrible things that not only the government would do to you, but that neighbors would do to neighbors. And, and I, 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 t I try to tell those stories so that people understand the path that we're going down, but it's, uh, it's everything we should be fighting against. Absolutely. Um, we're a little bit long, so I want to ask you one more question because this is a question I get asked often. We have a, I have a Facebook page. We have like 70,000 people and try to spread those ideas of liberty. And frequently now, people will say, I agree. What do we do about it? Right? So I don't know. That's why I'm looking to you. You've got, you've got your organization. What can people do to push back against the kind of authoritarianism we're seeing today? What, what is our move? So I, I think um, as someone that was a grassroots organizer and, you know, I worked on Capitol Hill and I, I tried to, uh, in my little way, fix the system from the inside and then I tried to fix it from the outside. Um, I've come to the conclusion, and, and this is something that Andrew Breitbart famously said time and again, we got to go upstream of politics into the popular culture. And for libertarians or the liberty curious or constitutional conservatives, what, or whatever you call yourself, a civil libertarian, um, that means telling beautiful stories about the amazing things that people can do when they're free. And we, we, don't, we don't tell great stories. We're, we all sort of geek out on the non-aggression principle and all that stuff. But if you just focus on people doing cool things or people that have been irreparably harmed by, by centralized power and, and government, uh, make it personal. Uh, this is something that Saul Alinsky said in a different context. Make it about a person, because I think, I think most normal people, unlike myself, um, consume information in large part through their emotions and their ability to connect with the, the person that is either telling the story or the story about a person as opposed to, to me when I'm thinking about trade-offs and opportunity costs and, and the unintended consequences of lockdowns. I think, I think those economic abstract arguments are not nearly as compelling. So if we go upstream, engage people in that cultural conversation, I think we're gonna discover that all, almost all of us share some core values, values like don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. Yeah. That's a nice way to wrap it up. Yeah, people, you're talking about um, hitting people where they live from uh, in their in their emotional center box. Like that, that's how you get a lot of people to relate to the points you're trying to make. Make that's, it personal. That's that's what we think, and and so far so good. I think we've had some success, and and we're still still sort of, you know, we're we're experimenting and testing because I think I think that the tremendous opportunity to use technology, you know, we're talking about blockchain, but the tremendous opportunity to use technology to reach people with these share set, set of values. We're just getting started. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. Um, I hope you enjoyed Matt. Matt, thank you so much. Um, again, his organization, Free the People, uh, his book, I got it right here. Don't hurt people. Don't take their stuff. 
it's it's a if, if you're looking for an introductory book to libertarianism this is the one get it read it um matt is there anywhere else anything else you'd like to promote or anywhere else people can find you now please uh um the best place to watch we produce a lot of videos about a lot of different things you can find us on youtube you can find us on instagram but also freethepeople.org is essentially a mini netflix where you can sort of sort through our catalog and watch the things that are interesting to you very cool all right that's it great matt thank you so much appreciate your time this was awesome